The following is a rebroadcast of Stratford University's Tech Talk. To hear Tech Talk live, tune in Saturday mornings at 9. You can find us on the radio on 1500 AM, 1045 FM, 1035 FM HD 2, 1039 FM HD 2, and 1077 FM HD 2. Or you can listen live online at federalnewsnetwork.com. Interfacing complete. Please stand by. Now downloading Tech Talk Radio with Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ. Tech Talk Radio, it's technology you can understand. And now here are Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ. Welcome to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge of Stratford University talking technology. I'm Dr. Richard Schertz. And I'm Jim Russ. And lots of stuff going on in technology, as always. Uh, Pegasus is still in the news. That's that spyware from an Israeli company. I'm going to give an update on that. I didn't get to it last week. There was an Akamai glitch that brought down some big, big websites uh, about a week ago. I'm going to talk about what Akamai is, why it's such an important part of the Internet infrastructure, and and then what uh, what happened? Uh, you've probably always wanted to know exactly how anonymous is Bitcoin. How did you know that? And it's not as anonymous as you think. But I'll walk through <laughs> all the ways that people can track you down if you are working with Bitcoin. And I'll talk about ways to achieve better anonymity uh, if you if that's really important to you. And uh, there's news in AI how to make artificial intelligence as good as the human brain. What's it gonna take? And this particular AI researcher's got an interesting take on it. This week, we're gonna feature uh, the man that invented or that created the first operating system for the microprocessor, Gary Kildall. He um, created it, but then Bill Gates beat him out with DOS. I'll talk about the sad saga. And of course, it was a huge, huge mailbag. There's a letter in your mailbox. We got an email from Seema in Fredericksburg. Dear Dr. Schertz, what's the difference between a MAC address and an IP address? Are both traceable back to your computer? How can you hide them? If by hiding them, is your computer safer from hackers? Thanks, Seema. Well, um, this is a, an easy uh, an easy discussion, Seema. Uh, there are basically two addresses that your computer has. The MAC address is the hardware address. And every piece of hardware has a, a MAC address. Uh, and so uh, that's called the uh, MAC is a, is a particular layer in the network um, software called Media Access Control. And when you are just communicating on directly to another PC over a network and not doing a hop through a node, you can just use the MAC address to communicate MAC address to MAC address. And every computer has a unique MAC address, and, uh, it's, uh, and it identifies the physical hardware. Now, the IP address, the Internet Protocol address, is the address that's been assigned to... Uh, to the computer in order to be routed over the internet. Now the internet, of course, 
when you go from one node to another, to another, to another, to the final destination. It goes through multiple nodes, and you need to have a unique IP address in order for the packet to find the right computer when it goes through all those nodes. And so uh, on the internet, you've, there is a, a public IP address uh, that you have, and whenever you want to communicate to a particular website, you will have to get that internet protocol address, that IP address from the domain name server, and send that message to that particular IP address, and it will go hop by hop by hop until it goes through the network. And so the, um, the internet protocol address is for a multi-hop communication. The MAC address is for basically a single single hop communication. Now there's one other nuance on the IP address. Uh, everyone has a router at the house. Within your internal network, you've got an internal IP address, which is assigned by the router. And uh, that internal IP address is only known to your router, and it keeps uses the internal IP address to identify all the computers within its local network. But when it goes out to the overall internet, your router has a single IP address, which has been assigned by the, by the internet service provider. That's the public IP address. And the router does something called network address translation. It takes your internal IP address, adds a port number to it, and then translates it to the external IP address and sends it. And then when somebody answers your message, it comes back to that external IP address, but, but it has the port number, so the your router knows which computer it should go to. It translates that address with the port number into the internal IP address and sends it to the computer. So that's called network address translation. And the, uh, the public IP address is known by the ISP, so if uh, the police were after you, and there was uh, something that came from a particular public IP address, they could go to the IP, they could go to the internet service provider, they could locate it, and you would be revealed. So it's not <laughs> that private. We did get an email from Linda in Myrtle Beach. Dear Tech Talk, my computer recently crashed. How do I recover my data? I mean, my pictures, my document folders, and all the really important items on my PC. I tried to do a recovery, but was unable to recover any files. Thanks, Linda in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Well, Linda, I'm assuming you do not have a backup, which, of course, is mistake number one. That would be your best option, get it from the backup. But if you don't have a, um, a backup, uh, there are several things you can do to recover data from your hard drive, short of sending it to a data recovery service, which will cost you several, several hundred dollars. First of all, you, want, you don't want to really use your hard drive to write anything, do anything to it. I would remove your hard drive from your computer, uh, make it an external hard drive by putting into a USB carrier. So basically, so it becomes a USB drive. And you can get a USB hard drive carrier on Amazon for about 25 bucks. And then you could either take that external USB hard drive, which is your old hard drive, you could plug it into another computer or... You could put a new hard drive in your computer and install the operating system and use it. Now, once you've got this, this external hard drive, you attach it to a computer, and then you can, uh, you can look around. And it, 
it may turn out to just the boot sector has been damaged, so it won't boot up, and all the files are there, in which case you could simply go to the subdirectory, because they'll, they'll all be there if, it's, uh, if, if it was just your boot up sequence that was broken, and you can copy them uh, from the external hard drive onto your local hard drive. Now, uh, that's the first thing I would, uh, I would do. Now, it, now, if you don't see anything, it might it might mean that the boot sector, or, uh, where uh, where all the indexing information had a corruption. So I would do a check disk slash r c h k d s k slash r. You go to the command prompt there, run that, and that will run through the check disk slash r will run through all the directory structure, and if it finds any errors in the directory, it will fix them. And that will make the files uh, visible. Um, uh, if, if it was a directory uh, crash issue, so once you go through check disk slash r, you can go back in and look around the hard drive to see if you find any uh, any files. Now, if that still doesn't work, there is a program called Recover. I love it, Recover. I've talked about it before. It's a free utility. You can download it. <laughs> Do you take money from it, them? <laughs> hmm? I said, do you take money from them? Are you are you on the dole from recover recover? No, uh, uh, not really, Jim. Uh, but uh, but I I would recommend it's a great program. It's free. It's a shareware. So I'd recommend if you go there, you might make a small donation. I mean, you, <laughs> in the name of Doctor Richard, I, I don't have any any any. They, they, these guys are just keeping maintaining recover for the good of the universe, and um, <laughs> and I think they make a little bit of money out of the deal. So. It will, it will check for the files and look for any files that have been erased or damaged, and that's a very excellent file system. I mean, even if a file's been deleted, the file content's still there. It's just that the, uh, the, the, uh, the index where the name of the file is, is has, been, has a question mark put as the first character, so then, it, the, then the file system doesn't pick it up. And you can simply go in and change that uh, naming on the file, and it will show up again. Because it, so when you erase a file, it doesn't really erase the file. It just removes it from the directory. So recover would be your last option. And uh, now, if, uh, if none of that works, uh, it is possible to send it to a file re uh, recovery company. They'll charge about 600 bucks, and they are pretty good at getting almost anything off of a hard drive. But... As always, don't forget about that backup. That's why you got this problem in the first place. We got an email from Bob in Maryland. Dear Doc Jim and the Moody, Mr. Big Voice. Wait a minute. <laughs> Moody, on. Mr. Big Voice. Come on now. Come on, man. He's, he, I, he's only Moody around the end of the year when he, when he doesn't get his bonus. Well, if he paid <laughs> attention the other 364 days, maybe he might. He might. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Okay, apparently part of the U.S. government has created a new website, Stop Ransomware. What's your opinion to this, Doc? All the best, your faithful listener, Bob in Maryland. Well, Bob, I didn't know about that website. I just checked it out. It's at cisa.gov, C-I-S-A.gov, slash Stop Ransomware. And uh, it places all the government ransomware resources in one location. I mean, it's quite a nice website. It's an excellent resource. I particularly like the section on best practices. They actually have a checklist 
on all the things you have to do to protect yourself against ransomware. Just go down and, and so I'd recommend to take a look at that website. It's a great resource. Uh, I, I think that's one thing the government did quite well putting that together. But CISA is really a, uh, uh, that's the Government Information Security Agency. CISA, they do really a good job trying to protect our networks and trying to protect everyone's networks. We got an email from Peter in Fairfax. Dear Tech Talk, I've got an older Lenovo ThinkPad T520 laptop, and I, I go to, I'd like to hook it up to a, a spare 40-inch monitor uh, so I can watch Netflix from my computer. The problem is the ThinkPad does not have an HDMI port, and the TV doesn't have a VGA connector. Is there any way to add an HDMI port to this laptop so I can connect my TV to it? Peter and Fairfax. Well, Peter, there are a couple of ways to add an HDMI port to your laptop, but you don't really need to. Uh, your ThinkPad 520 is equipped with a display port connector that provides video signals that are 100% compatible with HDMI. That means all you need is an inexpensive display port to HDMI adapter. You can get one of these from Amazon. Just go to Amazon and search for display port to HDMI. I mean, I went there this morning. There, I found about six of them that all got good reviews for about 10 bucks. So buy one of those. Uh, you also might be able to go down to a local retailer like uh, Best Buy. They might have it if you, if you just want to support the local economy. Either way, just plug in that uh, display port connector to your laptop and then plug the HDMI and into your TV and you'll be good to go. By the way, display port to HDMI adapter does transmit audio. So you don't have to have a separate audio connection. If you're, if you're gonna connect a VGA, you'd have to have a separate audio connection, but you don't have to in this case. I did something during similar during the pandemic. I had two, laptop, two uh, monitors plugged into my laptop for traffic camera surveillance in the home studio, and it worked pretty well. Hmm. Yeah. It. Uh, in fact, in fact, one of the monitors somebody had tossed in the uh, lobby of the building that I used to live in. And they were throwing it out. I just grabbed it, so I got a free monitor out of the deal. Still wow, works that, fine. That's the way. That is the way to get a monitor. Yeah. I'll tell you, that's a very good way. I mean, I, my, 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 you know, I threw out a couple of bikes a few years ago. My neighbor came over and got them and rebuilt them. Now he's riding my bikes around the neighborhood. Is it weird so, to watch him riding your bikes and smiling all the while? Uh, yeah, I'm thinking <laughs> I, prob I probably should have fixed them up. <laughs> I, 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 I actually, every time I see that, I regret it. At least the guy who threw out the monitor doesn't see the monitor every day. No, he doesn't. And if he does, I'm in trouble. That's right. Uh -huh. Okay, we got an email from, uh, let's see, from Al in Georgia. Dear Doc, hey, what happened to Jim? Dear Doc, I've got an old IP phone at home. It uh, does not have Keep NAT, Network Address Translation, alive. And it seems like my router NAT blocks the ports. Now, the phone rings, uh, but uh, there's, you know, I can't talk on it. There's just air. Then I need to restart the phone to punch another hole in the NAT for a while. I was wondering if putting my phone in the router DMZ would eliminate this problem and keep all the ports open in the future. I know you may have 
that you may have some security issues with it, but it's only a phone and, and it's not my whole network. Uh, love the show, Al. Well, I, I talked about network address translation. So, so what's happening here is uh, a signal's coming into the router with a particular port address, which is the port address which has been assigned to the IP phone. As soon as it sees that, it sends, it sends the connection to the IP phone. Now, uh, that particular forwarding, that network address translation forwarding, has to be kept alive in the router because it just won't keep them open forever. And so devices have kind of a keep alive. They'll, they'll actually occasionally ping the router, say, hey, keep me alive. Can I keep my port open so you can, my NAT works. And apparently this old phone does not have that keep alive function. So after about 10 minutes, the network address translation shuts down and it doesn't work. Now, there is a way to permanently assign a port to a particular device, and that's what they call the DMZ, the Demilitarized Zone. That's funny. <laughs> DMZ. So what happens is that you basically go into your router and configure the DMZ, and you say, look, this IP address, which would be the internal IP address of the phone, of your IP phone, always forward this port to that phone. Don't do any, don't, don't actually do any firewall activity. That comes in, you just crank through and you do the forward. It's called the demilitarized zone because you're not protected by the firewall. And it's, uh, uh, and so you're really outside of the firewall. So there is a security issue, but as he said, it's just a phone. So nobody's going to really try to be hacking the phone. So you can basically set up a demilitarized zone, which will forward the port number of your phone uh, directly to the internal IP address of the uh, of the IP phone. Now, now the problem is every time you turn the phone on and off, the router assigns another uh, IP address dynamically. So you, once you set up the DMZ, you want the you want the phone to have the same internal IP address every time. So you've got to go into the router and you've got to configure that particular MAC address to always be assigned the same internal IP address. And you can do that in the router configuration where uh, IP addresses are assigned and you simply assign a static IP address to that particular, uh, to that particular phone, which is, which is actually identified by a MAC address. So that previous computer was... A previous question actually sort of tied into this. But that was a great solution, Al, and you figured that out on your own before even talking to me. Congratulations. Listen, we love your emails. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu, and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. This is Tech Talk Radio, heard on Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 103.5 FM HD 2, 103.9 FM HD 2, southwest of D.C. on 107.7 FM HD 2, and in Loudoun County on 104.5 FM. On Twitter, find us at WFED Tech Talk. Learn more about the programs at Stratford University by going to stratford.edu. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment.
In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. Now it is time for... Profiles in IT. Yes, today we're going to feature Gary Arlen Kildall. Gary Kildall founded Digital Research Incorporated and created the CPM operating system, and which was the first operating system for a microprocessor. And his operating system was almost selected for the IBM PC. Gary Arlen Cadell was born May 19, 1942 in Seattle, Washington. Uh, Cadell later attended the University of uh, Washington, hoping to become a mathematics teacher. Uh, now, during his studies there, he became increasingly interested in computer technology. He ended up receiving a Bachelor of Science in Mathematics from the University of Washington in 1962. Then, then he was subject to the draft. In order to satisfy his draft requirements, he taught mathematics at the Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, California. I mean, that was quite a posh duty yeah. there, <laughs> right there, right there under uh, Golden Gate, right there beside Golden Gate Bridge Park. That's beautiful out there. Now, being within an hour's drive of Silicon Valley, Kildall heard about the first commercially available microprocessor, the Intel 4004. That was uh, uh, Intel's first microprocessor which they started producing after they bought the rights from Busycom. Uh, <clears throat> that's, a, um, that's, a, that's another long story where <laughs> Busycom ended up losing out on everything because they sold the rights to that. Now, he bought one of the processes and began writing experimental programs for it. Now, to learn more about the microprocessor, he worked as, at Intel as a consultant on his days off. And he kept tinkering around with this microprocessor. You see, up to that point, <clears throat> people viewed microprocessors like chips that would just sort of um, uh, augment a uh, different kind of electronics. You might put a chip in a, com in a refrigerator or something. They didn't view it as a full-blown computer, actually, at that time. But he was thinking it, that he could write an operating system as though that chip were a full-blown computer, 
and the operating system would actually talk to uh, storage medias, talk to RAM, uh, and behave like a complete uh, operating system for a computer. That was his, that was his vision, actually. So he began writing experimental programs for the Intel 4004, and uh, he finished working on his doctorate at the University of uh, Washington in, uh, in computer science in 1972. After he finished his uh, doctorate, he wrote a paper that introduced the theory of data flow analysis used in optimizing compilers. That's sometimes known as the Kildall method. Now, he continued to experiment with microcomputers and floppy disks. Uh, Intel lent him uh, the 8008 chip and the 8080 micro microprocessors so he could continue working with them. And in 1973, he developed the first high-level programming language for the microprocessors called PLM. He, he developed this for, um, for Intel. Now... He then created, on his own, an operating system called CPM. That stood for Control Program for Microprocessors. CPM, Control Program for Microprocessors. And that enabled the 8080, the Intel 8080 chip, to control a floppy drive and combine for the first time all the essential components of a computer at the microcomputer scale. This was the first operating system for a microprocessor. It was a big deal, and he did, he did this on his own. It's amazing. Now, he demonstrated the CPM to Intel, but Intel said, ah, we're not really that interested, and they decided to market PLM, the, the, the language which he, had, which he had developed. So Kildall and his wife Dorothy established a company, uh, which they called the Intergalactic Digital Research <laughs> Incorporated. Okay. Now, that sounds a little bit uh, spooky, and I think it would be hard to get you know serious people uh, uh, buying um, software from you. But they were trying to appeal to the hobbyists. They wanted to sell the operating system to hobbyists. But later on, even his wife thought it was a little kooky, so they changed the name to Digital Research Incorporated (DRI), and uh, <clears throat> and their their market was really to hobbyists. Uh, now, he invented something which was really quite innovative. He invented the idea of the BIOS, basic input-output system. You see, one of the problems, you write an operating system for a particular set of hardware or hardware configuration, um, it only works on that one hardware configuration. And you get a different hardware configuration, a different motherboard, a different uh, floppy drive. You'd have to write an entirely new operating system to connect to that hardware. So he came up with the idea of a basic input-output system, BIOS, where the specifics of the hardware are contained in the BIOS, and the BIOS maps the commands from the hardware commands into the standardized commands of the operating system. So you can use, if you have a BIOS, uh, a software, if, if you have a, a layer of software called the BIOS, you can use the same operating system for multiple hardware configurations, and you simply need a new BIOS for each hardware configuration. And that enabled his operating system, CPN, to run on literally thousands of computers. Uh, 
At, at the peak of its popularity, CPM ran on 3,000 different computer models, and DRI had revenue of $5.4 million per year. So he was really successful. And here's where he made his big mistake. In 19, see, he came out in 1981. That was the peak of the uh, popularity of CPM. IBM came out with their IBM PC in 1985, four years later. They started developing around 1983. So when they started uh, developing their uh, computer, the IBM PC, Bill Gates suggested that they, uh, that they contact uh, Kildall uh, and, uh, and see whether they could use his operating system in their PC, which, I mean, which was like a, which was actually a, a no-brainer. It made perfect sense. It was already it was already in operating. So IBM approached digital research. Uh, actually, that was back in 1980. They approached digital research in 1980, and uh, this was at Bill Gates' suggestion. They wanted to license the forthcoming version of CPM called CPM86 for the IBM PC. Now, now Gary Kildall, uh, he was sort of a uh, a free spirit. Rather than hang around for the negotiations with IBM, he he left. He, <laughs> he, he liked he liked to fly experimental airplanes, so he went off on an experimental airplane flight. He left his wife to negotiate with IBM, and uh, and before the uh, IBM people could explain the purpose of their visit, they insisted that DRI, DRI accept a standard non-disclosure agreement, uh, which is like a standard item. So they wouldn't reveal what the um, the the plans for the IBM PC. His wife refused to sign that, so they couldn't even have a discussion. So they left. Now Gary returned that afternoon uh, after IBM had left, and he signed the agreement. But they were gone. Now it. It turned out that the next uh, day, uh, Gary and his wife were on a, were on a flight. So, um, so then he uh, he he decided to uh, he met. It turned out that on that same flight were some of the IBM people. So they started talking, and uh, and they uh, you know they they didn't really come to terms. I mean, the whole thing started out on a very sour note, and. Um, Bill Gates and uh, and Microsoft had already agreed to provide the basic interpreter for the uh, for the IBM PC. So Gates, uh, so IBM said, okay, Bill Gates, uh, listen, you, you you try to find a suitable operating system since we're not going to be able to get the CPM. So so then they uh, they basically uh, started working on their own operating system, which became the Disk Operating System or DOS. You've heard of DOS, yeah. And they basically, um, if, if, you, if you listen to Kadal, Kildall, they uh, basically took and reverse engineered, engineered his operating system and basically copied the entire architecture, and they created PC-DOS. And so when, uh, when the IBM PC shipped, it shipped with, uh, with PC-DOS. You could buy the operating system. You, you, you would buy the, you'd buy the computer. The operating system was a separate purchase. And MS-DOS uh, sold for $40, which everybody bought. Now, IBM did make a concession because by the time the uh, IBM PC shipped, 
the next version of CPM had been released. And so they allowed Kildall to release his version of an operating system with the IBM PC, but even though he hadn't signed any licensing agreement with IBM. So, so then uh, IBM did make available to their clients the CPM operating system. The problem is that Kildall was charging $240 for his operating system compared to uh, Microsoft DOS, which was being sold for 40. So as you'd have guessed, most people bought DOS and not CPM, and all the applications ultimately were were developed, uh, you know, were developed for P, for Microsoft DOS. Now, after the loss of the IBM deal, Gary and Dorothy found themselves under pressure to bring in more experienced management. People sort of thought Gary had really muffed it because he was in the catbird seat to to get that operating system, and he just lost it. Now, Gary worked on various research projects. He he made a version of CPM for multitasking. He called it MPM. Then he made an impl implementation with the Logo programming language. Uh, he had hoped that Logo, which, an educational dialect of Lisp, would supplement basic in education, but it did not. Now, after seeing the demonstration of the Apple Lisa, uh, Kildall oversaw the creation of DRI's own graphical user interface called GEM, G-E-M. I remember GEM. I installed it. Huh. And that would, that would be the equivalent of the Microsoft Windows. In 1991, uh, Novell ultimately acquired DRI in a deal that gave Kildall millions of dollars. So he, he basically lost the deal with IBM. And I think uh, had he been there, they could have negotiated some kind of royalty deal that, uh, that would have been quite, uh, quite good for him. Because IBM, uh, Microsoft did not have to sell MS-DOS to, um, to IBM uh, to, to provide it on the computers. They continued to own Microsoft DOS, uh, you know, Intel, um, uh, rather, uh, uh, you know, IBM did not own it. So he could have negotiated something, but... But he didn't, and I think Bill Gates was just ready to jump in and, and do it. Now, uh, after he sold, uh, sold the company, he, uh, he and his wife started a public television program on the side. They called it Computer Chronicles, and it followed trends in personal computing. I mean, that's really a, a big shift, isn't it, doing Computer Chronicles? Yeah, uh-huh. It's, uh, it's a big shift, uh, but, you know, he's... He, but, he he made millions out of the deal, so he moved to a he moved to a fancy uh, fancy house. Wait, he out made on millions the beach. out of Computer Chronicles, the public TV show. Yeah, yeah. That's the, I'm stunned to hear that. Yeah, he uh, that that was an interesting shift, but you know he he sort of went into retirement mode after he after he got that uh, windfall of selling his uh, selling his company to Novell, and he became a biker and. Uh, you know, had was on the beach and just basically enjoyed his life. He liked to sail, liked to continue to like to fly planes. He had his own private Learjet. That was he. He'd moved up to the Learjet by that time. Uh, he, um, but he was always bitter about <laughs> Microsoft. Uh, you know, getting its position. He felt he should have been Bill Gates. He actually, um, in his memoir. He called DOS, the disk operating system that Microsoft created, plain and simple theft. Wow. Because the first 26 system calls in DOS 
were identical to the first 26 system calls in CPM. And that's pretty much what, uh, what they did. They, they, they pretty much just copied the operating system. Now, back then, um, uh, intellectual property protection for software what, law was not that well developed. And he went to an attorney and said, look, I think I should sue them for, uh, you know, for uh, you know, copyright infringement or patent infringement. But it turned out he didn't patent anything, didn't copyright anything. And the attorneys thought that given the state of software uh, intellectual property protection law at the time that he would not be able to win. So he chose not to sue Microsoft, but he was bitter, bitter until the end. In July 8th, 1994, Cadell fell in, at a Monterey, California restaurant. It was really a biker bar. He was wearing a Harley, da Harley Davidson uh, leather jacket at the time. And, uh, and he, he, he hit his head. And nobody's quite sure how that right. happened. It's very – I'm reading about this. What happened is very sketchy. Either yes. fell from a chair, fell down the steps, or was assaulted. Yeah. And you'd, you'd think they would know which of those were true. But uh, Apparently right. the local so, authorities were not called, I would let's guess. Put it, none of the bikers are talking. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he died a few years later from the head injuries. In March of 1995, Kildall was post – uh, was honored by the Software and Information Industry Association for his contributions to microcomputer to the microcomputer industry. He single-handedly envisioned, developed, and deployed the first full operating system for the microprocessor. That is quite, quite an achievement. Yes. And there you go. Everything you want to know about the man who created CPM and who had a television program called the Computer Chronicles. Hope you were paying attention and not uh, multitasking and watching public TV while listening to us because we're going to play the pop quiz coming up here on Tech Talk Radio. We're heard on Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 103.5 FM HD 2, 103.9 FM HD 2, southwest of D.C. on 107.7 FM HD 2, and in Loudoun County on 104.5 FM. Learn more about the programs at Stratford University and how you can attend by going to stratford.edu. My name is Luca. It's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. 
IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers, here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. From Washington, it's the Stratford University Pop Quiz with Andrew Mitchell, Jim Ross, featuring Mr. Big Voice, with musical guest, the Stratford University Junkyard Band, and your host, Dr. Richard Schertz. Oh, yes. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, I just love this part of the show. I know you do. Take Actually, it all this in. part of the a classroom of the airways, Jim. Yes. And that reminds me that we have to assess whether our audience has been doing their job and learning yeah. as we go along. And we do that with a uh, an assessment tool called the Pop Quiz. And if you get the right answer to the Pop Quiz, you'll get uh, two tickets to fine dining at the uh, one of the Stratford University dining rooms when we open after the pandemic. And you'll also get an A-plus for the show. You know, Jim, I was thinking, because we've been closed, you know, when you open it up, maybe we'll just have a special Tech Talk night, invite all the winners on that Tech Talk night like we did before. That would be fun, yeah. I like that idea. So, yeah, I think we'll do that. I think I'll schedule that. Then everybody that's won in the past can come in there for Tech Talk night, and Jim and I will be there, and we'll just uh, go around and talk to everybody. It's always fun to see who's who's listening to Tech Talk. It really is. I think that would be a very good solution as we're coming out of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Yep. Now, earlier in the show, I talked about Gary Arlen Kildall. He, of course, is the man who created the first operating system for the microprocessor called CPM. Now, after he sold his company to Novell, he produced a television program. What was the name of that television program? If you know the answer to today's question, pick up your phone, give us a call. If you're dialing from west of the Rockies, it's 877-936-9333. If you're checking the green fish lights under a random dock east of Playa del Shirts, Virginia, it's 877-936-9333. Hosting a public TV show in Canada? Call us on the wildcard line, 877-936-9333. Anyone else, anywhere else may call us on the international line. No longer sanitized hourly, follow local masking guidelines or not, 877-936-39333. Now, once again, here's Dr. Richard Schertz. Boy, he's saucy today, isn't he? He really is. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. Okay, let's, let's do the tip of the week. Now, how to get the most recent results from a Google search. Now, you ever done a Google search on a topic only to discover that most of the search results consisted of pages created years ago? Yeah, yes. Now, that's really not a problem for facts because facts don't change over time. Well, it depends on well, who you are. It depends. Yeah, it depends. <laughs> sometimes facts change. Like if, like if you want to type in the largest planet in the solar system— the answer you receive should be Jupiter, yes. and it doesn't matter whether the article was written in 1998 or 2021. Right. A- after all, Jupiter ha- really hasn't gotten smaller. Not that we know of. the other planets haven't grown larger. On the other hand, if you want to search for the latest medical results and, uh, and you search for Google, you might get some pages that are way out of date, you know, 10 years ago. Luckily... There's a way to ensure that Google always gives you the most recent information. 
you simply add the current year to your search inquiry. So you could simply say, give me the latest research on COVID-19 and then write 2021. And then you will get pages that are mostly from 2021 and you won't get pages from, you know, 2015. Good. Which is a very good trick That's to do. I do this all the time, Jim, when I'm when I'm searching because I want the latest information for Tech Talk, not I some old information. I know you do. You know what? Guess what? We do have somebody who called today. Okay. Let us go to line one. And this is Thomas calling us from Bowie. Thomas, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Good morning. Doc, yes. I didn't ask a question. Earlier in the show, I talked. I uh, was talking about uh, Gary Arlen Kildall. He's the man who created the operating system, CPN, for the microprocessor. After he sold this company, he started a television show. What was the name of that television show? The Computer Chronicles. Correct. That is correct. Very good, Thomas. Thank you for listening. Thanks for calling today. This is Tech Talk Radio. You can listen to us on the radio over the air on 1500 AM. 103.5 FM HD2, 103.9 FM HD2, southwest of D.C. on 107.7 FM HD2, and in Loudoun County on 104.5 FM. Want to go to Stratford University? Just go to Stratford EDU. Find out how. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Observations from the bunker. Ah, uh, yes. It's yes. the ominous sound. It is door. ominous sound, but at least I keep the bunker door open most of the time now, so I can I can look out at the water, yeah. watch sailboats passing by. You're on it's code mauve, I believe. Code mauve yes. as opposed to code yes, red. Yes, indeed. So yeah. today I, I started thinking about uh, intellectual property rights for software uh -huh. after hearing the woeful tale of uh, of Kildall and how he lost everything to Microsoft DOS. And really, intellectual property is an asset that a company owns that gives it a differentiation, a competitive advantage in the marketplace. And uh, 
back when uh, CPM was written, the, uh, the laws for intellectual property rights for software were not as well developed. Uh, but now, since then, they have been developed, and, and, they've been, uh, and they've been tried in the courts, and so we've got a much better idea of how to protect your intellectual property. And there's some processes you can go through. Number one, you want to file a copyright. Now, copyright uh, protects authorship. It, it was basically designed for music, for novels, for movies, for songs, for architecture. It can work for software. And so you want a, a copyright. That will keep people from simply lifting the, the software uh, and uh, carte blanche and simply using it, just like they can't plagiarize the software line by line by line. And, uh, and it turns out that copyright has been upheld in court. And there have been cases where people have, you know, copied blocks of the software sort of hidden in, in the internal portions of the program. And, uh, and people went in and they looked at it line by line by line and they proved that it was a copyright violation. Now, the second thing you can do is file for a patent. You see, because somebody could take your basic ideas and they could they could write all brand new code. Yeah. So they're not copying the code, but say they might copy the user interface or they might copy the application programming interfaces. They might copy the architecture or some key features. And so you can patent those features. Uh, and, then, you know, uh, Apple was very famous for that. They would they were trying to they were trying to patent their user interface and things like that. Microsoft tried to patent the idea of Windows, but they but they weren't allowed to do that because uh, the court said that Microsoft Windows have existed long before you were around. So yeah. they really couldn't, couldn't do that. And if you have a patent, it gives exclusive rights uh, to use. Uh, you have ownership of those properties for 20 years, and then the patent goes into the public domain. You can um, you can get a good return on investment because you can license a patent, and pe and you pe people can pay a certain licensing fee to uh, to use it, and uh, and uh, you can you could sell it if if you own the patent for it. So file for a patent is really good, and that's been uh, that's been upheld in uh, in uh, in the courts that the patents will hold. But you cannot always patent everything. Like some of the user interface ideas that uh, Apple had were so generic that the courts wouldn't let that patent hold. Uh, uh, you know, Google uh, tried to uh, um, tried to say that the um, APIs, application programming interfaces for the Android phone, could be patented and nobody could use those. That went to the courts, and the courts said, "Look, that's a generic." communication interface, you cannot patent that because if, if you had patent that, then it would be very hard for a software to interoperate. That was a particularly big court case there, but there are many other things where the patents were, were upheld. The third thing that you can do is uh, you want to be very careful of source code licenses. If you if you uh, license your source code, people can modify it, and they can say, "Well, it's different now," and they can they can get around your intellectual property controls. So one one way to do that is to set up a source code escrow, where the people actually the people that you've licensed it to really don't have a copy of the source code. It's an escrow, so they can have access to it. They can test things with it but they actually don't have control of it. 
and that gives you some uh, some degree of safety. But but any kind of source code licensing is quite dangerous from an intellectual property protection point of view. Then the last thing you can do, which is very important, and almost all of the big companies do this now, any developers that make them sign an IP assignment agreement, which means that any inventions or developments that they make while you're paying them, they assign the intellectual property rights to the company. That gives you absolute control over any intellectual property that was developed at your company. So if a company follows these four guidelines, they can protect their intellectual property rights. Now, it turned out that uh, in the case of CPM, none of those items were followed. And, uh, and as a result, Gary Kildall lost control of the operating system, and DOS was kind of a clone of the CPM, and there wasn't a thing that he could do about it. Wow. I think, Doc, I think we should just keep it right here for the rest of the show. Okay, let's talk about, um, I want to I talk about something here. How anonymous is Bitcoin? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was sort of interested in this little thing. Okay, cryptocurrency and Bitcoin especially have a reputation for being anonymous, an anonymous form of payment, free of tracking and interference. However, if you look a little closer, you'll see that these digital currencies reveal a lot more information than you might think. The main issue with Bitcoin is its wallet, which is public. And this is where Bitcoin is stored. Now, cryptocurrency wallets are generally what they call pseudonyms rather than anonymous. In other words, anonymity means they're nameless. Right. But what they do, uh, an anonymity is nameless. It comes from the Greek word without name. But instead, they give you a fake name. So that's called a pseudonym. It's a fake name. It's like some long string of numbers. It's not directly identified with you, but there's a fake name on your wallet. So you're not really anonymous. You're pseudonymous. Pseud <laughs> Pseudonymous. Pseudon okay, how do you pronounce that, Jim? Pseudonymous. Pseudon uh, I think we should just move on because I don't know either. Pseudonymous. So why don't you check that? Uh, and so now, uh, because and so now you've got this. So like instead of your like instead of your wallet being named Mark Twain, it's going to be some scramble of letters and numbers. Now here's the thing: the blockchain is public. So people can see whenever a particular wallet is used and what it's used for, and uh, and so the ledger is um, the ledger. The blockchain is really a ledger, which which is public. Anybody can see it. So suppose that um, that that you purchased a VPN, uh, and your friends know that you purchased that VPN. Uh, so they would go into the ledger and they would see. When was money transferred to a VPN company uh, on this particular time? And they say, oh, that wallet transferred money to the VPN. And so they could see that. So they say, well, that must be your wallet ID. That must be your wallet with the pseudonym on it. And then suppose that uh, you also made a contribution to Wikipedia. So then they go in and they look at the public ledger. Oh, it looks like the same wallet made a contribution to Wikipedia the next day at one o'clock. So they would be pretty sure that that wallet is yours, even though it's just got a pseudonym on it. And pseudonymous, so I think, is the word we're looking for. Pseudonymous? Yes. 
pseudonymous, pseudonymous. Pseudonymous. Okay, thank you, Jim. The Greek word is pseudonymon. Pseudonymon. Okay. <laughs> so yikes. So the thing is, because the ledger is public, and you can track activity on the ledger, it is possible to infer something. So it's not completely anonymous. Now, there's another problem with exchanges. Uh, exchanges where you buy Bitcoin. Now, it turns out the government has a lot of controls over these exchanges in order to allow them to operate. And if you join an exchange, uh, you have to provide uh, proof of identity. Like I joined Coinbase because I wanted to play around with crypto, and I had—I mean, I had to send—you know—send in my—you know—driver's license. I had to do a lot wow. of I, I, identification to verify that I was who I was because they were trying to uh, squelch any kind of money laundering. So if you buy the Bitcoin from an exchange, I'm telling you, you are not anonymous. You have to identify yourselves, or you're not going to be able to buy the Bitcoin or any other cryptocurrency through that exchange. Now, now you could try to use a, you know, some kind of fake ID, but uh, it's not advisable. Now, so you could be pseudonymous. Is, yeah. Now there is a way to get around this uh, if you don't want to identify yourself with at if you don't want to identify yourself with an at an exchange. You can actually uh, get an intermediary uh, and have him buy the Bitcoin for you. And then he could transfer the Bitcoin to your wallet. Now, and then people wouldn't know uh, who, who bought the Bitcoin. He would give his information. Now, I suppose they, if the authorities were after money laundering, the authorities could subpoena him and put him under oath. And then you might have an issue, but but at least nobody could track it directly because right. an intermediary did it. Now the second thing is you could mine the Bitcoin yourself. You could set up Bitcoin, Bitcoin mining machines, you could mine the Bitcoin, and then you are awarded the Bitcoin after you mine them, and you don't have to provide any identification at all. And that's the second thing you could the second way you could avoid uh, the hard ID that the exchanges required. And then the third thing is you could simply go to a Bitcoin ATM and pay cash. Uh, Bitcoin ATMs are, are far and few between, but they're around. And you pay cash at a Bitcoin ATM and they won't be able to track you down. I see them at a convenience store. I know. But wrap in the it up. end, in the end, oh my goodness, the, the show is over? Yes. We love your emails. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. Tech Talk Radio is sponsored by Stratford University. For more information on courses at Stratford University, call 1-800-444-0804. Thanks for listening to Tech Talk Radio Online.